The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Last summer, I came across an article by Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a prolific Christian writer and speaker, and he wrote an article in Christianity Today titled, The Death of Reading is Threatening the Soul. The Death of Reading is Threatening the Soul. And in the article, Yancey laments the fact uh, that he's not reading books anymore. Uh, or difficult books. Uh, the difficult books that he used to know and love, he's not engaging with anymore. Well, why is this the case? Well, he writes, The internet and social media have trained my brain to read a paragraph or two and then start looking around. When I read an article from The Atlantic or The New Yorker, after a few paragraphs, I glance over at the slide bar to judge the article's length. Guilty. My mind strays, and I find myself clicking on the sidebars and the underlying links. Soon I'm over at CNN.com reading Donald Trump's latest tweets. He goes on. Neuroscientists have an explanation for this phenomenon. When we learn something quick and new, we get a dopamine rush. Functional MRI brain scans show the brain's pleasure centers lighting up. In a famous experiment, rats keep pressing a lever to get that dopamine rush, choosing it over food or sex. In humans, emails also satisfy that pleasure center, as do Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. A 2016 Nielsen report calculates that the average American devotes more than 10 hours per day to consuming media, including radio, TV, and all electronic devices. That constitutes 65% of waking hours. 65% of waking hours, leaving little time for the much harder work of focused concentration on reading. Now, while much could be said about this article, I think one thing is clear. What we set before us, day in and day out, whether we realize it or not, is shaping us into the people that we are today. It's shaping who we are, how we, act, how, we're, how we act, and how we see the world around us. Yancey didn't wake up one morning and say, hey, you know, I'm going to stop reading long, difficult novels today. No, it was his day in and day out, ordinary practices that he probably wasn't even thinking about that formed him into who he is today. Now that's a sobering thought. And the reality is, each day we are inundated with stories, with the narrative behind every advertisement, newsreel, social media post, blog, TV show, album, conversation, even our own thoughts. There is a narrative being told about who we are and how we are to flourish as human beings. Who we are and how we are to flourish 
as human beings. So this Advent, we are journeying through Matthew's genealogy. Duh. Right? Um, We're journeying through Matthew's genealogy from Abraham to Christ so that in the midst of so many competing stories, we may be formed by the world's true story. And that story is the grand narrative of redemption climaxing in Jesus Christ. God's grand narrative of redemption climaxing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, last week, uh, we looked at the beginning of Matthew's genealogy. Matthew's genealogy can be divided into three groups of 14 generations. And last week, we journeyed through the first group, uh, from Abraham to Ruth, from Genesis to Judges, from hopeless situations to the God that brings hope through a covenant, through a promise. Do you remember? Um, all seems hopeless by Genesis 11 because humanity has corrupted God's good creation and is in a downward spiral of self-destruction. But we see God give hope in Genesis 12 through a covenant, through a promise to Abraham. What was that promise? A promise that he would be the father of a great nation. The promise of land. A promise that all the families of the earth would blessed through his offspring. It's a promise of a secure future. It's a promise of rescue from corruption for the nations through the line of Abraham. And as we went through the generations, as we went through the genealogy, we kept encountering hopeless situations given hope by the faithful covenant-keeping God. Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, hopeless. God rescues them, hope. Israel is wandering in the wilderness, hopeless. God delivers Israel from her enemies, hope. Stronger nations are in the land that was promised to Israel. God delivers Israel from her enemies. Israel is in the land, but they have no king. And everyone is doing right in their own eyes. Yet... God is not uninvolved watching from a distance. He preserves his people through very flawed judges. Uh, we've been going through judges with the youth. Um, as, a, as a kid, and I'm reading these stories, I'm like, yay, violence. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, what is going on here? Right? I mean, we just looked at Samson. Um, hey, guys, let's talk about Samson going kamikaze. All right, here we go. Shades Valley Youth, right? It's a dark time in Israel's history. But during that time, there was a woman in a hopeless situation, a Moabite woman named Ruth. And Ruth was brought into the people of God and would give birth to a son, Obed. And through Obed, Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. The father of King David. Now, can we just pause for a second and reflect on the sovereign power of God to accomplish his salvific purposes in the midst of complete chaos, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of a period like 
judges. Despite everything, the genealogy reveals that God has not forgotten his word to Abraham, although it may appear like it. His offspring have not been wiped out. And from the line of Abraham has come a king. King David. King David. Now, Matthew begins his genealogy by saying, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I think one major reason he does this is to show how the two great covenants, the two great covenants, that of Abraham and David, reached their long-awaited fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so last week we reflected on the covenant with Abraham, a covenant that said that through him, through his line, salvation, blessing would come to the nations, right? Redemption from corruption. But what about the covenant with David? Why is that significant? Jesus Christ, the son of David. Well, first, let's remember where we are in the story. Uh, When you enter into 1 and 2 Samuel, you see the end of the dark period of the judges and the beginning of the kingship of Israel. Now, the problem with Israel desiring a king is not that they wanted a king as such. It was their motivation. It was the reason that they wanted a king. Why did Israel want a king? So they could be like the other nations. And Israel is called to be set apart, to bring blessing to the nations, not to be like the other nations. They're in need need of God's redemption. It was their motivation. And the people wanted Saul. Why? Because Saul is a, a king you can be proud of. Tall, strong, and handsome. He's a celebrity pastor in the making. A book deal is... Sure in his future. He's the leader that the people of God wants. But even though Saul looks good on paper, he replicated the sin of Adam and of Israel. He began trusting the Lord, but then turns away. It goes bad. It's a tragedy. Well, who's next? Well, next... The Lord anoints an unlikely, unlikely candidate for king, a, humbled, a humble shepherd boy, David. Now, here is a man after God's own heart. And under David's kingship, Israel experienced peace, stability, unity. He established Jerusalem as the capital city, and he brought in the ark. It's, it's obvious that David is prospering not because of his outward appearance or his personality, but because he is a king that has submitted himself to Yahweh. He is a king that walks in obedience to Yahweh. He is an ideal king. And in 2 Samuel 7, we see the beauty of God's faithful love to a covenant he makes with David. David's passion for the Lord reaches a high point. And his desire to build God a house or a temple in Jerusalem for God to dwell in. David wants to build God a house. 
But the word of the Lord surprises him. 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You and your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so do we see what happens in 2 Samuel 7? It starts out with David wanting to build God a house. And God says to David, no, I'm going to build you a house. Uh, I'm going to build you a dynasty. God swears his faithful love to David in his line from David, a king will come. A king that will sit on the throne and rule his kingdom forever. Nothing will thwart his rule. He will be a forever king. And what's David's response? Me? <laughs> Why me? His response is unworthiness. He feels unworthy and he reflects on God's faithfulness to his people and how they've been unworthy, but he's been faithful. The offspring from Abraham that will bless the nations will come from the line of David. This blessing will come through a king and a kingdom. Through a king and a kingdom. But, but, what happens when God's pledge of faithful love is met with Israel's unfaithful, fickle love. What happens when God's pledge of faithful love is met with Israel's fickle, unfaithful love? Well, look at Matthew 1, 6-7 in the genealogy. And David was the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah. So, we've been paying attention to when Matthew deviates from his X was the father of Y formula for the genealogy. Welp, here's one. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. A rut-row. The wife of Uriah. Why write the wife of Uriah. He's highlighting David's sin. David, the ideal king. He's highlighting his sin. When kings went to war, David didn't. He saw Bathsheba and he wanted her. He slept with her. She became pregnant. And so to cover it up, he planned the murder of her husband, Uriah. David, with all his good qualities, obedient track record, and success will not be the king that Israel needs. He commits great evil. There's another lesser well-known example of David's unfaithfulness. At the end of his life, he plans a census. Well, why, why is that him being unfaithful? David's not relying on the power of the Lord 
He's relying on the size of his army. Ah, yes. And when he realizes his sin and how disobedient he was and how his disobedience will negatively affect the people of God, he tries to intercede for them. He tries to act as a mediator, but David cannot. And the people of Israel are punished. David is not the king that Israel needs. So, did David's failures cause the Lord to remove his faithful love? To go back on his promise that a king from David's line would rule forever? No. God, out of his free grace for Israel, anoints Solomon as king. Solomon, uh, the son of Bathsheba. Could he be the king that Israel needs? Well, Gibeon, when Yahweh appears to Solomon, he asks Yahweh for wisdom. And because of his wisdom and success, Solomon becomes renowned. People, including the Queen of Sheba, come from all over to sit at his feet and to hear his wisdom. And during his reign, Solomon builds a glorious temple, just like the Lord said would happen in 2 Samuel 7. And the people praise God for steadfast love and faithfulness, and a cloud fills the temple so that the priests uh, couldn't do their work. The glorious presence of God is among His people. They see His steadfast love. Maybe Solomon will be the offspring that will bring blessing to the world. No. Solomon disobeys the Lord, chasing foreign wives, and falls into idol worship. Even with all his wisdom, even with all his success, Solomon is not the king that Israel needs. And God tells him that because he is chased after foreign gods, the kingdom of Israel will be divided. The united monarchy under David and Solomon, yes, blessing to the nations, growing weaker. The kingdom will be divided. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Under the rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. The united monarchy is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom will be known as Judah. It will have a king from the line of David on the throne. The northern kingdom, composed of ten tribes, will be known as Israel. Now, this is not looking good. <laughs> Where are God's promises? Does he abandon Israel? The king that Israel needs is nowhere to be found. The king that Israel needs is nowhere to be found. How about the north? Any kings in the north? Nope. All bad. No good kings. All evil. Well, okay, that's the north. But what about the south? Ah, yes, the descendants from the line of David, from the promised line of David. Well, still not looking good. There are many evil kings from the line of David. And Matthew lists them in his genealogy. Kings like Abijah, 
and Joram. Uh, Joram murdered his brothers to eliminate rivals and had a terrible reign. You keep going in the genealogy, Matthew uh, leaves out three kings. Summary, all bad. Uzziah started well but then fell into sin and pride and died of leprosy. Not a good ending. Ahaz practiced child sacrifice. Surely it can't get any worse. Manasseh, although he repented, one of the most wicked kings in the history of Judah. Encouraged idol worship, practiced sorcery, and even sacrificed his own child. Faithless, fickle love. Now, there were some good kings from the line of David that Matthew lists in his genealogy. Kings like Asaph removed idol worship, brought the nation back to God. Jehoshaphat brought reform, sent out priests to teach the people. Hezekiah, mostly good, cleansed the temple, destroying idol worship. Josiah, ah, Josiah, now the greatest of all the reformers. While renovating the temple, he rediscovered the book of the law and called people to obey its word. Reform is coming to the people of God by close attention to the word of God. Not in detail, but in practice. What are you setting before you each day? What are we setting before us? But... Josiah would not be the king that Israel needs. Even the good kings, I want you to feel the hopelessness of this, even the good kings did not have the power to bring about real change. The good work of a faithful king would just be undone by an evil king to come. It is a hopeless cycle. And it's about to get worse. Matthew's genealogy tells us it's about to get worse. As a result of the people's wickedness, as a result of their idol worship, making them like the nations, Israel is still here doing that. The northern kingdom eventually fell to the Assyrian Empire. And then, as Matthew shows in verse 11... Judah falls to the Babylonian Empire. Israel is in exile. The people of God have been taken away from their homeland, the land that was promised to them. It looks like the promises of God have failed. It looks like God has removed His love from His people. His people, Abraham's descendants, Judah's descendants, David's descendants, have no land, no throne, no king. Where is God's love? Can he be trusted? Is he faithful? It's the question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 89. You know how Psalm 89 begins? It's this beautiful declaration of the steadfast love of God. Why? Because of his promise to David. A promise of an everlasting throne with a king on it and a kingdom. That's the declaration. But how does the psalm end? 
The psalm ends in lament. Why? Because Israel has been defeated by her enemies. Because Israel is in exile. And you know what the psalmist says? The psalmist says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? By which your faithfulness you swore to David. The psalmist's current circumstances are causing him to feel like God has abandoned his people. And it looks and feels as if God has forsaken his promises to the house of David and therefore to his people. Maybe for some of us this Advent, as we look around us, we see very little evidence of the steadfast love of God. It feels like he's unconcerned, uninvolved, or unable to bring any real joy, any human flourishing. We know his promises, but if we're we're honest, we're questioning them. The darkness of the chaos and evil in the world and the chaos and evil in our own lives is speaking a powerful word. That word, God cannot be trusted. There is no love from God. In the midst of that word, shades, and all the other narratives that we're being told day in and day out, I want us to hear a different word. A word from not the end of Psalm 89, but the middle of Psalm 89, about the character of the love of God. Psalm 89 Verses 30 through 35. God says about David's offspring, this is significant. The promised offspring. If they forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Exile. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I do not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. I will not lie to David. The good news of the Davidic covenant is that God's promise is not conditioned by who Israel is, but by who he is. Their unfaithfulness ultimately cannot remove his promise to David that through his line, Israel will have a king that will reign on the throne forever. His love is not rooted in who they are, but who he is. Ah. His love for Israel is not rooted in who they are, but who he is. The baby in the manger shows the faithful love of God, not of Israel, not of the people of God, but of God. It shows Israel's desperate need for God to come to them, and he will in the person of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises. When the angel comes to Mary, he says something very significant. 
He says about Jesus, The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Uh, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. This morning, set your gaze on Christ. And therefore, set your gaze on the character of God's love. Rooted in not who we are, but who He is. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the evidence of God's faithful love to his people. Not the sin of David or Solomon or the kings to follow could ever thwart God's plan, could ever thwart God's purposes. He has sent the king that Israel needs, the king that you and I desperately need. He is not a king like Saul. He is not a king that they were expecting. No, he comes in a manger. He had no form or majesty, no beauty that anyone should desire him or behold him. He is a humble king like David, but he is a better David. He will not fail. He walks in perfect obedience to the Father, and therefore he is a good and fit mediator, a person who can intercede for the people of God, a king who can take their sin and their continued failure and fickle love upon himself. He is our great high priest. He is sufficient. His love is rooted not in who we are, but who he is. And unlike Solomon, he doesn't need to build a temple because he is the temple. He is the place that heaven and earth intersect. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And therefore, he brings hope in hopeless situations. And he loves the unlovable. Because Jesus is not only the king, but he is the groom. He is the groom that has pledged his love to his bride, the church. Through him, God swears his love to us. That's significant. Through Jesus, God swears his love to us. Um, we tend to be drawn towards, uh, we tend to love and commit ourselves um, to that which we find attractive to that which we think will give us something, um, to that thing that we think will benefit us. That's what our affections are drawn to. That's the thing that we tend to love. But the love of God is different. Um, the love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. Hmm? The love of God does not find but creates what is pleasing to it. It's the 500th year of the Reformation. I'm doing a Luther quote. I think Luther says it well here. Sinners are attractive to God because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Do you see that difference? 
Sinners are attractive to God because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. This is the love of the cross, which turns in the direction where it does not find good, which it may enjoy, but where it may confer good on the bad and needy person. The love of God is rooted in who he is, not in who we are. And when we, the unworthy bride, are united to Jesus Christ by the wedding band of faith, we are given all his riches, and he takes on all our debt. When bride, the, when, excuse me, when Christ, the groom, takes an unworthy bride, he takes on all of her debt, and he gives her all his Riches. He swears his faithful love to her. Will the faithful love of Christ fail? Will the bride's sin and unfaithfulness prevent him from accomplishing his sanctifying purposes in her life? No. He is a fit mediator. He takes on her sin and he crushes it. Will trials Will struggles, will the darkest night separate the bride from her groom? No. He has defeated the darkest of nights. He has defeated her, his bride's greatest enemy, death. Shall death, darkness, evil, wickedness separate the bride of Christ from her groom? No. No church, we are secure in the love of God. Thanks be to God that his love for us, that his covenant faithfulness for us, for the church, is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so let's end where we started this morning. Let's end by this Advent, in this season of waiting, by setting before us the faithful love of God, the faithful love of Christ, the groom, the faithful love that will not fail in bringing us to glory. May we see that. Amen.